coming straight off a slump. A crazy motherfucker named Nipsey. I'm turned up because I grew up in the 60s. Once an hour, you were going to hear Hustle in the House on our radio station. That's why your bitch want to flip me. Debbie Brown and her colleagues at K-Day loved Hustle in the House. I give a fuck who you supposed to be. So much so that they hand cut a clean edit so they could play it on air. The 2008 banger was a callback to the classic L.A. gangster rap days of the late 80s and 90s. But now, Nipsey was the charismatic tour guide for this new generation. This is the first time Nip had been on the radio and had saturation on the radio, and the record was doing well. People loved this song. Hearing his song blasting on the airwaves in his hometown was a major moment for 23-year-old Nipsey Hussle. And I remember he was so excited. He used to just call me like, yo, how's the song doing? Yo, we getting requests. Like, he was so pumped to be able to turn it on and hear himself. There was one problem, though. Debbie and her colleagues didn't realize there were so many references to the Rolling 60s Crips embedded in the song. We started getting a lot of backlash from community leaders and activists within L.A. specifically saying, listen, this is out of control. You guys are romanticizing gang culture. You guys are promoting Rolling 60s Crips on the airwaves. Blue rag, S-hat? Yeah, that's a Rolling 60s reference. I'm turned up because I grew up in the 60s. Another reference to the game. You see, Nipsey was a member of the Rolling 60s. He was rapping about what he knew. And so we had to make the decision to remove the record. It killed me to do that. It killed me. And so I remember having to call him and tell him, like, listen, let me go through some of these voicemails with you. This is what we're hearing. And it ended up being a valuable learning experience, you know, ha- having to tell somebody like Nip, like, I need you to cripple us on your records so I can play them. I was damn near gangbanging. It was like an anthem for my neighborhood. But you say certain things, you're going to automatically make other people not be a part of it. I learned fast that, you know, I can't exclude people with my music. Him just always still being really a scientist through it all, you know, really just saying, okay, so I get it. So this formula for where I want to go in my life and where I want to take myself, I got to elevate. I got to refine. I got to chisel. Okay, word, note to self. And so he took it just fine. From 30 for 30 podcast and the undefeated, this is the King of Crenshaw. I'm Justin Tinsley. Episode two. Where you from? All right, let's get it. Get right into it. Let's get it. Uh, I always like to start it with um, there was a movie about your life, and the opening scene is kind of going through Crenshaw, coming through the front door of your house. Mm-hmm. What are we seeing? What are we hearing? What are we smelling? We seeing a family house, you know, like pictures on the mantel, a bed in the living room, a couch with a rollout bed underneath it. You smelling coffee or like cooking. My granny was always cooking. My mom was always cooking. We lived at my granny house. This is Nipsey's older brother, Sam, AKA Black Sam. My uncle was staying in the back room as a two bedroom. My grandma heard her room and then there was me, my mom and Nip 
in the living room on the little pullout bed. What are we hearing? Man, uh, you might be hearing the price is right. Granny had that on lock. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? From a young age, Nipsey learned to live with his feet in two worlds. His parents divorced when he was little. You know, we never lived in the same house. You know, as far as I can remember, my mom and him were separated. Oh, man, I, I love my pops. He'd cook for us, take us to the movies, clown, watch movies. We was movie buffs, all of us. Nipsey's father, DeWitt, moved to Los Angeles from Eritrea in the 70s. He'd fled the political and social turmoil of his East African home for the promise of a better life in America. We used to just get up as kids and try to watch cartoons, like on Saturday. You know, you're trying to catch our cartoons, and he'll be up already watching CNN. So we could get damn near anything from Pop, but we not getting him to turn the news off. He's like, no, 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 you guys got to wait. So me and Nip would be there really just hurt. We had to wait an hour or two. Finally, he'd be like, okay, you guys can get it. Their father was determined. His sons would know what was going on in the world and where they were from. He was really adamant about educating us, me and Nip, about where he was from, the history, the conflict, uh, you know, when they ended up finally getting independence. So we just, without knowing it, we were real educated on that history, African history, and just really history in general. Pop would always tell us, like, yeah, I'm going to take you guys to Africa. He still had his mother out there, his sister, all her kids, his brother's kids. And he's like, you know, that's your whole other side of the family that you guys never seen. He was the only one out here. Their mother was more focused on South L.A. and protecting them from the reality just outside their door. When we were younger, we was a little sheltered. My mom wouldn't really let us go too much anywhere. When he was in elementary school, young Nipsey, Sam, their little sister Samantha, and their mom moved out of Granny's house and into their own home close by on 60th Street. And as the boys got a little older, their mom loosened her grip. Once we moved on 60th, she started letting us go and walk to the basketball course, summer camps, summer schools. Nipsey and Sam got to go outside and experience Crenshaw, the historic heart of Black L.A. Much like 125th Street in Harlem or U Street in Washington, D.C., it was, still is, a gathering place for Black Los Angeles. You're liable to see everything from parades of freshly polished classic cars on a Sunday to social justice protests. Man, to me, South LA, it was always fun. You come outside, it's sunny, you know, all the neighbors are friendly. It ain't all like what you hear, like menace to society. I mean, that shit kind of go on too, but you know, for the most part, it was, it was yeah. cool. Nipsey's close friend, music collaborator, and business partner, Kabi Supreme, also grew up in the 80s and 90s in South L.A. And so did his day one partner, Jay Stone. I can remember getting up in the morning. Sometimes you'll hear, like, uh, the sounds of uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. You'll hear dogs barking. You'll go outside. you see lowriders. The fire hydrant might be uh, broke. Water right. just flying everywhere. Kids around playing. You know what I'm saying? It was a dope place to grow up. It was like a really lit up place. Obviously, what we know about Crenshaw Boulevard in the 90s, it was like a car epicenter. So everybody in LA brought their cars to ride down Crenshaw on the weekend. It really felt like a community, a lot of entrepreneurial 
outside hustling going on, whether it's the dude selling incense on the corner or Final Call, Nation of Islam, people standing on the corner selling bean pies. But Nipsey and his brother Sam noticed that there was another energy pulsing through their neighborhood streets. That's when we start realizing, like, where we at. Getting in fights with some of the kids, getting bikes stolen, and then us on 60th having to walk over there, five, six thick, take the bikes back. So we was always seeing and knowing, you know, what neighborhood we was growing up in and, and what it was. Cobby Supreme and Jay Stone soon learned that the hood was dominated by gang activity. My first memory of that was like the hustling, the richness of it. I seen like the glamour and the glitz and I seen Jervy and I seen lowriders and 5.0s and Corvettes. I seen things that regular people couldn't obtain and these guys had it. I was young, you know, in elementary, coming home from school, it'd be like 20 to 30 dudes standing in front of the building, you know, a lot of activity going on, you know, it just becomes appealing a little bit. We used to see certain people getting money. We used to see certain demonstrations, like we go into the ice cream truck and, you know, somebody see us at the ice cream truck, pull up, gold chains, hop out, don't say nothing, just look out, like get everybody everything and then jump back in the car. I would go outside in the back, they'd be out there fighting, testing each other's hands, getting each other better. And then you see movies and you'd be like, damn, I see that. Outside, like, I ain't even got to go to the movie theater to see this. Like, this is actually happening outside. Nipsey never shied away from discussing this part of his life. That's how the streets is ran in L.A., gangbanging, not hustling. L.A. is banging. So it's like every community is controlled by a gang and got a history, a narrative of what happened and who did what and who stood down and who stood up and who did what they were supposed to. It's the way of the, of the area that you grew up in. It's the way of life that... Your granny know about it. Your aunties and them know about it. Your mama know about it. Everybody, you know, the, the, the mailman know the difference between the neighborhoods that you drop and delivering mail in. As kids, we come from nurturing, but there's a lack of that and the coldness you get from going outside and having to survive. You get in survival mode. Lots of cities have gangs, but for young black and brown men in LA, there was no way to leave your house safely without understanding their influence. Gangs are intertwined with Los Angeles culture. If our culture in LA is a tapestry, they are several threads that run through that tapestry. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the understandable. I'm Georgia Leap and even though my full-time job is on the faculty at UCLA, my passion since 1980 has been working in South LA with gangs, with gang-involved youth, with families, and with the community. According to LEAP, there are close to 1,200 street gangs in LA County. Most people think about African-American or Black gangs. The Crips, the Bloods, and all the different sort of sets they break down into. The Bounty Hunter Bloods, the East Coast Crips, the Rolling Thirties, the Rolling Sixties, the Grape Street Crips. There were a series of Crips gang who took their names from the numbered streets and the Rolling Sixties were from the streets, the Sixties. 60, 61st, 62nd. 60th. 
the street where Nipsey and Sam spent part of their childhood, set the boundaries for one of L.A.'s most infamous gangs, the Rolling 60s Crips. In that time, in the 80s and the 90s, they were very high profile. They were very heavy hitters. They were a large gang with an incredible reputation for being very lethal. In other words, they weren't playing. The number of gang-related homicides in Los Angeles County between 1979 and 1994, when Nipsey was just nine years old, qualifies as an epidemic. During the time Nipsey and his friends were growing up, there was basically a young black or brown man being killed every single day. Nipsey always understood there was a chance his life could end the way it did. Damn right I like the life I built. Nipsey rapped on grinding all my life. I'm from West Side 60s. Shit, I might got killed. As Georgia Leap says, the 60s were not the ones to be messed with. They had kind of multiple personality disorder as a gang. They were very violent. They were involved in the drug trade. They were involved in all kinds of brutality, retaliation, enforcement. But they also had a history from 1976 onwards. So they were well established. They had a history of trying to do things in the community. And it was a teeter-totter. And sometimes it went towards, let's build the community. CRIPS is said to be an acronym for Community Revolution in Progress or Continuous Revolution in Progress. So it would be, let's try to build our community because no one else is helping. And the other side of the teeter-totter was, we're badass, you better respect us. My whole life, I grew up in a culture from the time I was born. I lost a couple uncles to gang violence by the time I was five years old. So it was a part of me. It was my first educational tool of understanding what was what, where to go, where not to go, what color to wear, what color not to wear. It's part of life. You know, it's tough politics, and it's something that you comprehend at an early age before you even understand syllables. NBA star DeMar DeRozan grew up in Compton. And whether in Compton, Crenshaw, or anywhere else in South L.A., you always had to be aware of your surroundings. It's the survival of the fittest, and you got to understand so many rules to be able to be safe and survive every time you go outside. You just be extra aware. You try to be extra cautious. To this day, I, I, like it kind of gives you a sense of some sort of PTSD because, you know, your nerves get bad because you're just overcompensating with being aware about your surroundings, you know, and that's how it was for me growing up my whole life. You had to be that way if you wanted to be safe. There was another big aspect to negotiating life outdoors, basketball. Every corner, every block, if it was a basketball court in somebody's yard, if it was a crate up on somebody's garage, you found some way to go out there and play especially at parks, you know, whether it was my elementary school or everybody meeting up to walk to a park to go play. That was mandatory. For kids coming up in these neighborhoods, ball really was life. It was a different type of camaraderie, different type of bonding with your neighborhood. That's when you kind of really get your bravado from, your passion for the game. When you grow up, Playing in between them lines, growing up in a neighborhood like we did, it make you a man. Being 
11, 12, 13 years old and playing 21. And you beating somebody so bad that you basically got to fight your way off the court at that point. And that's a whole nother game within itself that you got to kind of be able to make it home and say you still won. You know, you let your mom, everybody know that I got in a fight too, but I won the game and the fight. Basketball was more than a game, more than a passion. Basketball offered choices. I'm always amazed when I'm in South L.A. and I talk to young men about what they want to do when they grow up. And they say two things. I want to be in the NBA or I want to be a rap star. So first and foremost, they are the pathway to upward mobility. They are the pathway to success. This was true for DeMar. It was also true for Nipsey, his brother, and all his friends, like Jay Stone. Growing up, we didn't have that many opportunities as people have today. Where we was at in the neighborhood, that was really our only way out. We didn't really want to be doctors and, and firemen and stuff like that. Growing up as kids, you know, you would never hear nobody say, I want to be Mr. Rogers. You know what I mean? You want to see somebody that they could comprehend with, that looked like them, that talked like them, that walked like them. And become successful and, and see that and, and a belief in them becomes more than they ever could imagine because the person that they watch and come from their neighborhood. Basketball and rap weren't the only two options for young black kids in South L.A. But they were two of the most accessible. They filled lots of young minds with dreams and ambition. And most importantly, hope. You don't need equipment. You don't need training at Juilliard. In the case of the NBA, you need some asphalt and hoops. In the case of rap, you need someone who's going to be able to record it. These are things that are accessible. They're not like being an, an Olympic equestrian. They are something that is right there out in the streets and depend on raw ability and talent. And let's not forget, in both of those arenas, what kids have seen is that black men have succeeded to an extent no one could imagine. For someone with the talent to make good on those dreams, like DeMar, basketball offered a form of protection. The games was the first ones to give me the protection and the positive motivation that you needed because they seen no other way out for themselves. But when they seen somebody else have an opportunity to make it out, they made sure of it. But don't get it twisted. Protection shouldn't be mistaken for immunity. Like you, you still had to live in Compton. You know, you can't just sit in the house and just go play basketball. You still had to go and get to wherever you had to go. And sometimes that wrong turn at a wrong place, you could be in a situation you wasn't hoping for. My only goal every night was always to make it home. You know, that was one thing. My mom always said, I don't care what goes on as long as you walk in this house at night. The minute you're busy playing sports, you're less busy with the hood, pure and simple. You can't take the hood away without putting something in its place. You gotta put something in the vacuum. Hi, I'm Michael Abels, and I'm a composer. If you've watched Jordan Peele's Get Out, or Us, then you know Michael's work. In the early 2000s, 
Michael led an arts education program for kids, including a beat-making class at the Watts Towers, an historic arts and creative space in South L.A. So I would, every Saturday, I had essentially a studio that fit in the back of my car. And I would go to the Watts Towers, and we'd unpack the studio and set it up. And, you know, inside of learning how to set up and break down a studio every afternoon, you end up learning a lot about how, how studio gear works and signal flow and, and the things that you might actually learn in school. But it was all done this way of like, hey, free studio time. Before the 2000s, equipment was really expensive. So I could never afford to buy equipment or pay for studio time. So at that time, one of the hugest challenges for artists was access to technology. It was possible to have a studio in your home for maybe only the first time in history, but that technology was still out of reach for students in poorer communities. So my mom, just knowing I had a passion, she found this community center at the Watts Towers and was like, you know, they, got, they offer a class once a week. It's like electronic music. I used to catch the bus to the train and go to the Watts Towers on Saturday. So the, really the nature of my program was to give people access to technology, not to teach them arts, not really. But the real emphasis was to give them just the access to get their hands on the stuff that people were using to make music and then just turn them loose. He taught us how to use an MPC, which is the beat machine, yeah. a 16 track recorder. That was my first exposure to production. There was a group of about, I don't know, maybe, you know, a couple kids, sometimes have a dozen. And Ermius was one of them. Teenage Nipsey was still known the most by his given name, Ermius. What he was was really quietly confident. There are people who are quiet who are shy, but there are people who are quiet because they're just waiting <laughs> and they know who they are. He, he wasn't there to prove he was the best. He was like to say, here I am and this is what I'm about. And I also saw that he was very thoughtful about his lyrics and what he wanted to say was well thought out. He was not speaking just to hear himself talk. He really wanted to say something meaningful. You know, I thought I was gonna be like crisscross, bro. Really, I thought I was gonna be like, like a young artist sign when I was a little kid. But I was writing raps and like, you know, just, um, I guess when I was probably eight, nine, my goal was that by the time I'm 12, 13, I'll be signed and cracking as a little kid artist. Mm -hmm. And when I wasn't, I was like, fuck rap. Nipsey, like his brother, like so many of his friends, like so many young kids growing up in South LA, needed something to fill the vacuum. And when music was taking too long, the hood came rushing in. You got a perception that to be a gang member, you just gotta be this cold-hearted, calculated killer. And that's far farthest from the truth. You know, you got young people that was sport prodigies and you know what I mean, you had dreams to be chefs and they just grew up in an area that was gangbanging. You know, go outside, that's what's going on. And then, you know, as a man, you want to identify with strength. You know, you ain't got no strength in your house. You go outside, who, who respect it outside? And who, who got confidence, who got pride? You know what I mean? Because I'm going to pattern myself out of them. And that was gang members. You know, about like 13, 14, like my brother had got shot and then he died. 
that's what kind of like turned me up a little bit, just turned my heart a little bit cold and just turned me up in the streets, you know what I'm saying? Nipsey and Jay Stone both joined the Rolling 60s Crips around age 14. I remember one time seeing him and he had black eyes. And so I'm like, man, what the fuck happened? And he wouldn't say nothing. And I'm like, like, what happened? You know, if we ever get in a fight with anybody, he's gonna tell me like, yeah, these. So he wasn't saying anything and it just hit me. I'm like, oh, this nigga done got put on. So at that point I was just like, damn. Sam, three years older than Nipsey, had already gotten tangled up in the streets. So when Nipsey came home all beat up, he knew exactly what was going on. For me, it really wasn't no thought. It was like, it was like in a family. It was just, it was regular. You know, I was raised up in it. I was, I was born of it. So that was me. Like Nipsey, his friends, rappers Kabi Supreme and Pac-Man the Gunman, understood the dangers of what they were getting involved in. But they also appreciated what it offered them. It ain't all violent. It's pros and cons to it. We ain't just running around crazy murdering people. We, we really help out in the community. And you know, when we was young, you know what I'm saying? Even helping the old ladies with the groceries. I used to be in my building taking out everybody's trash. Yeah, it's all love. It ain't just all murder like the movies, what, how they portray it to be. The good part about gang culture, if, they, if you could even say that without being attacked, is that the world said we was wrong, but the set embraced you for who you was. And that's the allure of gangbanging in the gang is that you might have been broke. Your mama might have been on drugs. You might have not had the material success, but the gang don't judge you on that. The gang judge you on your heart. If you got heart, we gonna embrace you and we love you. And that's the only requirement. And so a lot of young people, that's all they had to offer. You know what I mean? They didn't have none of the qualities that made the world value you. But the gang was pure in the sense that we were strictly off the heart. That's it. And it's, it's considered violence because we're going to make you fight to show your heart. But if you show your heart, we're going to embrace you and, and you're going you're gonna to rise in the hierarchy and you're going to be somebody. For better or for worse, that's the allure to a young kid. The reality is gang life comes with multiple negative connotations, pitfalls, and dangers. But it's where Nipsey met the friends he would trust for the rest of his life that he create music with and start businesses with. And it's true that, as a teenager, Nipsey chose that over school. He dropped out. He operated on street code. By the time he was 18, Nipsey Hussle was fully cold. I'm going to be honest and speak blunt. I'm like, you know what, man? As a gangbanger, right, when you go on a mission, when you're looking for your so-called enemy, you're driving through a different hood, down the street. You know, it's an invisible line. You cross this street, now you're in another hood. And you hunting. And when you're looking, you, you're going to pass up the dude that's dressed square, right? You're going to pass up a dude from a different race. When you see somebody that's dressed like you dress and got the walk like you got and got the, the body language like you, you're going to say, there you go. Get him. And that's deep. You know what I'm saying? When you really unpack that, you're looking for yourself just on the other side of town. And you're going to hop out and, and, and attack him and, and try to down him in a real way. And being caught up in gangbanging culture, you don't think that deep. You just think of, these niggas came through and shot the hood up. We about to go back through there and, and return the favor. And little by little, he, he you know, his reputation started growing and people started like, oh, no, you know, your, your brother, man, you know, he, 
this, this, this. And I'm just like, damn, he's fully in the streets, hanging out, doing everything. Knowing full well what that life was like, Sam was concerned. He's frontline, gang banging. So I'm just like, all right, we got to, number one, I got to kind of tap back in and, and try to pull him and make sure we straight because it's a lot of shit within the hood, inner politics that could have went bad. Be in jail for life or be dead at a young age. So I think that's one of my main things. And I know he was really focused on the music. And I'm thinking in my head at this point, like this is the one for sure thing that I know he would go hard on is the music and uh, take a lot of his focus and time out of the streets if we really focus in on this. So that's when I kind of like full throttle switch gears to like help him as much as I could with the music and let him know I'm here to support. In other words, Sam wanted to find something else to fill Nipsey's vacuum with. But first, they had to find a way to raise money for recording equipment. I used to have a Lincoln. When I was 19, I had a white Lincoln on Alpinas. You know what I'm saying? And um, everybody used to try to buy that car from me. And I was getting girls. I was turned up. So I'm like, I ain't selling this car. I had reached my little adolescent dream that I had for myself. And I'm like, you know, I could either go to my next level with this. And that was to, like, fully, fully pursue what I had my hands in at that time. Or I'm like, or I could fuck with what I've been having an itch to do, which was the music. And at that time, you know, I felt like a star because I was like, my charisma was on 10. I was balling for the first time. I had thousands in my pocket for the first time. I knew how to get money out the streets. You know, I was like, had a reputation. I'm a star in my mind. This LA, you feel me? I felt like I don't got to change up to be a successful rapper. I just need a camera on me. You know, I just need to talk about what's going on. I don't have to like put no scoops on it to come up with no persona, no shit like that. It's done. And so I'm like, this is probably not going to be too hard if I really fuck with the music. And I'm like, fuck that. I called D-Mac. D-Mac was been trying to buy the car from me. I'm like, you still want this car, bro? He like, yep. He pulled up right <laughs> here in the lowrider with a Rouse bag with racks in it and mm. gave me the cash. I gave him the key. <laughs> and then I went to, uh, I hit my brother like, I'm about to go buy some equipment. And he like, how much you got? And I told him what I got. He like, all right, I'm going to match him. He had already had studio equipment that he put together, built a computer, had the mic, had the inbox. So he's recording things, letting me hear shit. And I'm like, damn, you wrote that? I'm like, man, this shit is crazy. I end up trying to uh, write a lyric. That shit took me like seven days. Trash, everything. I just threw it away like, all right, I'm done. This shit ain't for me. <laughs> so, you know, I knew he was very talented and I told him this too. If you was trash, I would have told you like, hey bro, Fuck music. We not finna do this. Let's do something else. But it was it was the total opposite. I saw it as like, oh, anything I throw at this, with bro behind it, we gonna win. We gonna win. And um, whatever I had, I remember telling him, like, look, man, this is what we got. This is what I got towards it. Man, I'm all in. And, um, you know, same thing with him. He's like, I'm all in too. He sold his car, sold his jewelry, bought better equipment, and just went and started going all in. I remember bro telling me like, this is my plan. This is the label that I started. It's Slauson Boy Records. This is my business cards. I'm like, damn, okay. Those Slauson Boy Records business cards are how my friend Brian first heard about Nipsey. So Nip ran point on everything. I matched some of the money and um, we had business cards. We had promotional flyers. We had posters. Nip had CDs and we just hit Slauson. Hit the whole Slauson, hit Crenshaw. 
We hit Nip had every homie, every female putting up posters and just hit it like nobody had ever seen it. Hit the streets, passing out the CDs. The real package CD looking like it could go in a store with barcode and everything. Those CDs were Slauson Boy Volume 1. That's the first music of Nipsey's I ever heard. It was, as Brian had prepared me for, for the gangbang talk. It was a world that I didn't know firsthand, but I didn't have to. There was something about it that was honest and raw. Nipsey was rapping about his reality, and he wasn't ashamed of it. He didn't downplay it. He didn't glorify it or exploit it. He owned it and provided nuance when so much of the conversation around gangbanging is rooted in stereotypes. He saw a chance to use music to give something to others who would walk the same path. Representation. I wanted my message to impact gang culture. I wanted what I had to say to impact individuals like myself, young people that was in these areas that was controlled by gangbanging. I didn't want to preach to the choir, but I wanted to be able to say, you know, uh, I'm one of you. And where I'm going to go, wherever I end up, you're going to know that you can end up there too. I came from this, and it's, it's authentic, and I'm not on the outside of this culture. I came in and said, this is where I'm from, and this is mm-hmm. what I represent. But it was for a reason. I wanted to establish, you know, what I belong to. And I looked at it like jail. That's what I used to tell my homies, because when you walk into a dorm, the first thing you establish is where you from. Nipsey knew where he was from. He'd never lose sight of where he was from. But now, he needed to figure out where he was going. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Coming up on the next episode of The King of Crenshaw. We was kind of going through the same stuff, trying to, you know poke our chest out and be who we always thought we could be. He was really reckoning with himself. Who am I based on the sum of experiences I've had thus far? And who can I be based on all of the unknown circumstances I haven't walked into yet? Me being a 5'9 guard in the NBA, like, that, that shit don't happen. We was both grinding in different fields, just trying to get to the top with no handouts. I think that's what the definition of the marathon is. It's just the fact that He made that a priority for our people, but he also put that priority into play. It's like, I'm not only talking about it, I'm gonna also do it and show you how to do it. The name Nipsey Hussle is bigger than all your songs. The moment you get a record to match your name, 
that's when they'll they're gonna have to give you grammy nominations you have to just make something that they can fuck with we call it slaps right give the people some slaps that's next on the king of crenshaw from 30 for 30 podcast and the undefeated The King of Crenshaw was reported and hosted by me, Justin Tinsley. Senior producer is Joanne Griffith. Our production team, Gus Navarro, Dave King, and Derwin Graham. The series was edited by Julia Lowry Henderson, senior editorial producer for 30 for 30 Podcasts, and Steve Reese, deputy editor for The Undefeated. Executive producers, Aaron Layden, Brian Lockhart, Kevin Merida, and Raina Kelly. Additional production support, Meredith Hotner, Mitra Caboli, and Eve Wolf. Original music by Lawrence Dobson and Lamar Edwards of 1500 to Nothing. Music supervisor, Kevin Wilson. Mix engineering by Ryan Ross-Smith, Garrett Lang, and Ben Tolliday. Project manager and licensing, Kath Sankey. Jennifer Thorpe provided additional licensing support. Development. Adam Newhouse and Trevor Gill. Chantre K-Mac is our talent director. And Cherie Stevens, our associate talent director. Demi Lauren created the original artwork for the series. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Alan Lau provided legal review. Special thanks to Riley Bloom, Holly Tenty, Jonathan Larson, Anthony Salas, the team at Podville Media, and everyone who made time to speak with us for this series. 